Over to you, Steve. Okay, I promised last week I would have a whiteboard. I have a whiteboard. Can I have an ooh? Very exciting. That will be coming into play later on. In the meantime, would you like to turn to Acts chapter 6? A wonky stand, that'll do. Sharing the good news of Jesus is, uh, is something we all know the Bible tells us to do, doesn't it? We can't, we can't wriggle out of that one, can we? However, hands up if you struggle to know how. Hands up if you struggle to know how to share the good news of Jesus. If you struggle to know sometimes when, should I say anything? Should I not? If you struggle to even know the what. Someone just says to you, what is it you even believe? And you're like, huh? and you kind of don't even know where to start sometimes. It's a practical, real struggle for all of us, isn't it? I think if we're all honest... With ourselves. Some people find it easier than others, but it's not always simple and it's not always easy. So today I'm hoping that today, compared to last week and previous weeks, will be kind of different yet again, to be honest. I'm hoping that by the end of today we'll all have some tools for our tool belt in sharing the good news of Jesus, but along the way we'll just get to celebrate the good news itself. It'll be a, lead us to a good place just to praise him through song later on. And what we've got here in Acts chapter 6 is a story of um, it's a guy with the best name in the Bible, to be honest. Stephen with a PH. You can't really go wrong with that, can you? So uh, it's clearly a dude already before we've even started. But we're going to read from verses 8 through to um, 15. And in, in this episode, as we work through the book of Acts, there's a message here where we learn about the reaction to his message, to the good news of Jesus that he's sharing and its associated works that he's doing. There's a lesson for us in that. And there's a lesson in what to do when we come across these kind of reactions, when we come across these kind of opportunities. And trust me, by the end of, end of today, we'll all have a little bit of something extra on our tool belts to help us do so. So, Karen is going to help me read from uh, the book of Acts. Where did the microphone? Have we got the handheld mic anywhere? Where's that gone? I'll tell you what, use this one. It's behind you. Use this one, mate. This is Karen and Angus, if you don't know them, and they are amazing. <laughs> Car- you are? Have I been you? No, no, you haven't been paying a thing, and you are. And she's married to G, and G is a legend in his own right, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yes. He's, a, he's away today, and who's going to start, Angus or Karen? Are you, you going to read all of this? Yeah. Brilliant. Go so, for it. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. Then some of those uh, who belonged to the synagogue of the free man, as it was called and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those in uh, Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit of which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak um, blasphemous words amongst Moses and God. And then they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said 
This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the laws. And we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses to what he has delivered to us. And gazing at him, um, all who sat in the council saw his face and said his face was like that of an angel. Brilliant. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Angus. Well done, you. So, this uh, moment is building up to um, a new episode in the church where the horrendous will become real. We'll find out next week. David's speaking next week about what happens next after this, where we see um, on the back of this, believers will flee amid intense, horrible persecution. They'll scatter far and wide. And later on, we'll discover how God uses that for an explosion of the gospel. But in the meantime, we've got two parties here that I want to look at in a moment. Simply, I just want to look at this audience, these people who are offended. I want to look at them for a moment. There's something we can learn there. And then I just want to look at the guy himself, Stephen, the defender of the faith. As he stands, stands up for Jesus, I just want to look at him. And there's a couple of things we can learn from him before we do something different to end. All right? Let me just pray. And that's where we're going. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the Bible because it reveals you in a living way. Lord, we thank you because of that. Most of us in this room, we've stepped into that adventure with you that you have made possible of life with you forever. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've made possible. Lord, as we read from your word again, as we learn from it, will you speak to us? Will you transform us? Will you change us? May none of us leave this room unchanged this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, first of all, let's just look at this audience. Let's look at those people that have been offended. Now, these antagonizers, they're quite a mix. We get a list of all these different names. But there is a common theme that becomes quite obvious. It's quite a simple theme. Um, There is a reason why they get listed. So we need to find out what it is. Now, bear with me. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a history and a geography lesson. You thought you'd left school? A little bit of that, but it will be worth it. You don't have to remember all these details, but I trust it will help you. So, just to help set the context, um, each nation at the time in Jerusalem had their own synagogues. It's exactly like today we have Nigerian churches in London, and at the same time we have Brazilian churches and French-speaking churches in London. It's the same kind of principle to today is what they had back then, these different Jewish synagogues based around ethnicities, based around nationalities. Now, that's, what is, that's what's being listed here, that Luke, the writer, is listing these different kind of nationality synagogues, these collections of people with their own ethnic-based synagogues. And the first one, he talks about the synagogue of the freed men, is how he describes them. Now, these people, also known as the Libertines at the time, they were most likely Jews who had been um, taken into slavery by the Romans, but then later freed. Now, that was either them specifically, or... That's the heritage of the synagogue of how it came about, which is why they got the name the freed men. At the very least, these people are Greek-speaking Jews because of their background. Most likely um, freed slaves or their kind of ancestors were, and they are Greek-speaking Jews, but in Jerusalem. That's their synagogue. That's their, that's their circle. Okay? That's the freed men. What's next on the list? The Cyrenians. The Cyrenians, they originated from North Africa. Okay, they, uh, we hear about in Mark 15, we hear about Simon of Cyrene. He's the guy who is forced to carry Jesus' cross. Simon and his sons get mentioned, Alexander and Rufus. Those three men were Cyrenian. 
They're from Cyrene. That's what this Jewish synagogue was based and focused around, the people who are Cyrenian Jews. So we've got the Cyrenians, we've got the freedmen. And then what's next on the list? We've got the Alexandrians. These people are Egyptians. They're from Alexandria. It's the great city that was started by Alexander the Great some 350 years before this happens. Um, so we've got freedmen, Greek-speaking Jews. We've got people from Cyrene in North Africa. We've got some Egyptians. And then the list goes in the other direction. They talks about um, Cilicia. Cilicia was a province that is in what we would now call southern Turkey. Um, the capital of Cilicia was Tarsus, which is where, if you're familiar with the Bible and the book of Acts, is where Paul comes from. He was originally known as Saul of Tarsus. He was from southern Turkey. So we've got, uh, we got the Egyptians, we've got North Africans, we've got um, what we'd now call Turks, and then it also mentions about Asians as well, which just keeps going further and further east. The point of this, these different places of Jewish worship coming together, being offended by the gospel, uh, they've each got their own ethnic pedigree, these groups of people got their own national identity, but they're coming together, they've been stirred up by this common threat to them. When you add in the fact that they stir up the elders and the scribes and the people here, the general population, you've got this crazy mix of people from all directions of the compass who are antagonized and offended by the gospel. Why? Well, the common theme is because the gospel transcends culture. It's not offensive to just one or two. It threatens all. The gospel, and what I mean by the word gospel is simply good news. That's what it means. The good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, that cuts to the heart of every other system or answer to the brokenness we see around us or any other religion that is in existence. That's what the gospel does. It speaks to the heart of every single one. The Bible's big headline, that God himself stepped into our brokenness to rescue us, that's not a threat to one particular type of society or one particular type of person like some other belief systems might be, and they can be sometimes. Let's just look a little bit closer at how Christianity compares to others because, for example, Christianity in its purest biblical form doesn't have a headquarters or a geographical focus like other beliefs we might see around us. You get Islam has its focus on Mecca for example. You get um, Buddhism and the general focus on the Far East, particularly Tibet, but others as well. Um, or you get cults that twist Christianity and their headquarters and their focus, like Mormonism, is on Salt Lake City. Or Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their headquarters in New York. There's a hierarchical uh, organization behind it and it focuses on a geographical place or a headquarters and so on. Christianity, in its purest biblical form, does not have that. But in the same way, it's not just about it transcends geography. It transcends language as well. Some beliefs have sacred languages, don't they? Islam has Arabic. It's, it, was, it is blatantly wrong to read or recite the Quran in anything other than Arabic, according to Islam. But then you get Judaism and their focus on Hebrew and how they use Hebrew in their worship. There's a sacred language to those beliefs and, and others. Christianity doesn't have that. Christianity transcends language. To prove the point, Paul, when he wrote his letters in the New Testament, for example, he could have written, or probably should have written, in Hebrew or classical Greek to be extra holy. But instead, he chose common Greek. 
to make sure that the good news of Jesus and the outworkings of that are available, available universally to everyone. And even Jesus proves the point as well. In Mark 14, when we see when he's praying, he, um, he, as a Jewish man, he should be praying in classic Hebrew. But he starts that prayer with an Aramaic word, Abba, which is, an, which is a, form of, uh, it's a really intimate form of the word Father. It means Papa, Daddy. He doesn't even start his prayer in the language he should be using as a Jewish man. He starts in another language entirely. The point is, the gospel transcends language as well as geography. It's for everyone. The gospel is universal, and it's a message that is truly unique. We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, when it stirs antagonism from any or every corner, sometimes in surprising places and from surprising people. And the Christian message is uniquely universal simply because of what it is as well. The message is that God, perfect God himself, he stooped down into our brokenness to rescue us and bring us home. And that is a message for every single soul on this planet, regardless of their bloodline or origin or native tongue or social status. And because of that, it's a threat to every single way of life. It's a threat to every human who uh, finds their identity in anything else other than Jesus. It's a threat. We, we bristle at anything that threatens our sense of identity. You know, you just get, you can't even put your finger on it while you're getting upset or angry or defensive because something is, is attacking your sense of identity. And if we find our identity in our career, in our money, in our family, in our ethnicity, whatever it might be, as soon as anything speaks against that or cuts to the heart of it, suddenly we're defensive. With Jesus, the good news of what he has done for each one of us cuts to the heart of that. And it threatens to pull our man-made securities down like a house of cards. And that's why we can get defensive, and that's why we can find other people getting defensive, or even, like we see here, on the attack. So what can we do with this? Well, one thing it does teach us is that it means the gospel is not, not for certain people. We need to remember that sometimes. Nobody is excluded. We can never say, yeah, but not them. And not them. We can never say that. No one is beyond the reach of the good news of Jesus and his open invite to all. I mean, the people that you've been praying for, the people you've been speaking to, none of them are beyond saving. We can never write them off. No one is in a place where the good news can't reach them. And that should encourage us, shouldn't it? Yeah? In, in Matthew 28, when Matthew, and, um, Jesus commissioned his disciples. What did he say? Go and make disciples of all nations. And in Revelation, the book of Revelation, when we see John, he has a vision, he has a picture of what, is, what it's like in heaven with the great multitudes around the throne worshipping worshiping the Lord. He sees these people are from every tribe and every tongue. So whether that's middle class Londoners, or rich Chinese Malaysians, or the homeless in Paris, or tribes lost up the, up the delta of the Amazon. Regardless of who they are, all are invited. And therefore, that also means the grumpy old man Daniel Road, the, perfect, the family that look like they're sorted, or even that cousin of yours who bristles every time you mention the word church. None of them are excluded. Sometimes there's 
obviously a reason why they're bristling. No one is immune and nobody is beyond God's reach either. And as we'll see in the next few chapters, God likes to prove the point here that out of this crowd, there's at least one, more, one man in this crowd who God's going to do a great work in. Saul, who became Paul, is part of this crowd. So that's the offended, but what about the defender? What about Stephen? Because the good news is for all, we should never be discouraged, but we shouldn't be surprised when retaliation comes from surprising places. I mean, what happens here? These people, they're getting so angsty, they're stirring up false accusations against the man, aren't they? This is the first time, actually, that any agitators against what's happening amongst God's church, this is the first time they stirred up the people as well as the religious leaders, which is quite interesting. They're getting desperate. And what they try and do, they muster up a trial and try and bring um, Stephen before the council. But in doing so, they struggle to find enough evidence <laughs> for the prosecution. So they, get, they stir up false witnesses, don't they? That's what it says. Uh, verse 13, they set up false witnesses. We see that today in the political arena, don't we? Um, we also see it closer to home with malicious gossip and things like that. It's not necessarily a new thing, as this passage shows us. When people can't withstand the truth, they resort to lies, they may attack the person, that's probably the most common thing actually today, and they like to twist what is true. I mean, when Jesus was in the same situation, when um, his words threatened the masses around him, when he was arrested and put on trial, they did exactly the same thing to him too. In Matthew 26, verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So even there, they were getting defensive about where their seat of power was threatened. Their, where they held their sense of identity was being threatened, so immediately they're on the attack by desperate measures. But Jesus doesn't rise to it. In that passage, you keep reading, you find he just stays silent. He just, he just stands there. He only responds when he's later requested to confirm if he's the Messiah or not. But at the first... He doesn't do anything. And Stephen here, like his saviour, is not retaliating. The next chapter, as David will take us through next week, he, he will walk them through their people's history, leading up to and including the Messiah that they have killed. He's very brave in doing so. <laughs> he ends up digging his own grave because of it. But he's throwing caution to the wind by then because he's at a point where Everything goes for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to sacrifice, risk his own life for that. So he opens his mouth. But immediately, right now, he's keeping silent. He's just letting them dig their own graves, effectively. That's what he's doing. And so there's something we can learn from this, because outright hostility, like we see in this passage, that kind of thing tends to happen in other countries at the moment, doesn't it? We don't tend to see it here in the UK, this kind of extreme attacks and later on in accuracy, riots and all sorts. We don't tend to see that in the UK Certainly at the moment, anyway. There are civil cases sometimes about health professionals having to stand up for their faith. We see that in the news sometimes. Sometimes I'll suggest that's not even persecution. That's them being foolish <laughs> and not being wise with how they witness sometimes. Sometimes it's a genuine attack and they are standing up for their faith. We see some of that a little bit sometimes. Um, but not a lot, to be fair, in this country. We've got it easy, haven't we? But we do sometimes find it on a personal uh, on a personal basis, some of these kind of things do happen, don't we? I remember um, we got invited to uh, some neighbours' Christmas drinks. They just moved in just 
Um, this was four or five years ago. They just moved into the street shortly before Christmas, and they had Christmas drinks at their house for everyone who was invited. We went along, and for the first time, I met a mutual neighbour that I didn't know because he was round the corner, but their gardens backed onto each other. So they'd invited him, but I'd never met him before. So I didn't know who this bloke was. And after a while, we'd, most of us were just sitting in, a, sitting in a ring, a dozen of us or so, eating our Pringles. And, uh, and the moment this guy discovered what I did for a living, the moment he found out I was a church pastor, the venom that poured from this guy's faith, utter vitriol from his face, the utter vitriol, vitriol just poured out of his lips, just, just gunning against how much he hated God and refused to believe, him, believe in him because of what he'd done to his little niece with leukemia, and it just came pouring out at me. And I just got a real strong sense of the Holy Spirit. It's like, stay silent. You don't need to say anything here. Be compassionate, but don't argue. Don't, meet, don't, don't deal with the attack. Just deal with the heart underneath it. So I just said, I'm just really sorry about your niece. And that's all I said. Said nothing else. And then strangely enough, our host, I'm paraphrasing her, but she said words along, along, the, along the lines to him of, uh, I think you'll find the God you're attacking isn't the God that Steve believes in either. She, she said it for me. But I just got a real strong sense that the last thing I should be doing is, is dealing with, well, I think you'll find that the Bible says that's totally unhelpful. Just need to be compassionate. There is a place for silence. There is a place for biting our tongues. Um, it's, those kind of moments aren't something we can avoid, but we can choose how we respond. Yeah? Um, Stephen, here, he's responding like Jesus, and that's our take-home. He doesn't retaliate immediately, just like Jesus refused to. What Stephen does, just like Jesus... He seizes the chance to let them dig their own graves in many ways, but also later on, as we'll see next week, he veers away from peripheral arguments and cuts straight to the heart. Instead, he focuses on who Jesus is. But until then, he's practicing silence. The key for us, one of the take-homes I trust for you today, is to stand in confidence, but not in contrariness. Does that make sense? We can stand in confidence of who we are. We can stand in confidence of what Jesus has done. We can stand in confidence for what he might even be doing in this moment in that person's heart that we don't know about. We can stand in confidence for that. Holy Spirit's always at work. But sometimes our natural reaction is to be contrary and to attack the immediate question. We need to look at the heart underneath those questions. To look at the heart underneath those attacks. We need to understand that. And that takes a lot of just learning to listen to Holy Spirit's nudges, of course. But we can stand in confidence but we should never stand in contrariness and to help us here there's a, there's, um, there's a verse that describes Stephen that I think is really helpful that we can learn from verse 8 right at the beginning and Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs and then they, it goes on about they didn't like what he was saying he was full of grace and power that's a really interesting combination the balance of both of those is an absolutely essential thing for us to learn because one without the other is dangerous. We need the balance of both. See, grace without power, and what I mean by the word grace is undeserved favour. It's love that goes the extra mile, love that pays a price. That's what we mean by the word grace. And that kind of love, but without power, will leave you with a church or an individual who is loving and embracing, absolutely, but they're missing the dynamite of what Holy Spirit can do in terms of demonstrating a God who is greater than us. 
we are commanded in the Bible as the church to love one another and to love our communities, yeah? Yes? We can do lots of that in our own strength, can't we? Can't we? I know lots of charities and lots of individuals who do that. I know a lot of people who aren't Christians who are better Christians than some Christians I know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it happens. We can do a lot of things in our own strength that look great and are very gracious. But surely if we want people to see our Jesus for themselves, they need to see things happen that can't just be us. They need to see that there's a God behind this who is bigger than us and there must be someone else at work in this. Yeah? Amen? Amen. We need to seek more of Holy Spirit working through our conversations, using our words, asking him for help for the right words to say, asking him for help to know when not to say anything, but also in seeking opportunities to pray and to see what God does with that. Miracles, healings, etc. We need to be seeking that. If what we see in the book of Acts, that Holy Spirit is doing amazing works in the birth of the church and he hasn't stopped, we want to see more of that here today, do we not? Amen. Grace without power is actually a weak and dangerous thing. What about power without grace? Power, but without grace, leaves us with a church community or an individual who may well be conjuring great stories to tell for years to come, but without the integrity or the compassion to back it up. Actions speak louder than the words sometimes, don't they? For example, there may be someone who sees many answers to prayer when it comes to healing and the likes, but their private life is sinful and their conduct can be undermining the message. Sometimes there are people who operate in these gifts and ministries and they're in the limelight and they're what we see, their gifts, the things they do, the stories they generate, they're very desirable and exciting. Oh, I'd love a bit of that. But the dysfunction of their private lives when it comes to light, it makes us ask, why have they been getting those answers to prayer and I haven't? It's a question, isn't it? It's a fair question. The reason is this. It's because God's gifts to us are exactly that. They are not dependent on us being squeaky clean or being extra good because if that were so, they wouldn't be gifts, they'd be well-earned wages. The key for us is to embrace the gifts that God has given us, given us. Forget other people. What gifts has God given you or he's put in your heart to seek and ask him for? And then we can worship with those in integrity, in honour. That is a choice that some other people do squander. They squander that opportunity. And that's for people with the opportunity to speak into their lives to deal with. And that's for them to choose if they're going to repent or not. But we should still humbly bow our heads and seek God's face in every corner of our lives, both public and private. That's what we can do with the gifts that he has given us. Yes? Yes. And so... Grace without power is a dangerous thing. Power without grace is just a dangerous thing and it damages. And so here, what we see, we have Stephen modelling what it means to possess both. We've got the grace of God in this man. You notice he's not retaliating. He's simply standing firm. But he also has the power of God. He's, he's exercising these signs and wonders. And in the last verse, we see that he has the face like an angel. What a phrase. That's what brings God the most glory. Let me look at this face. Uh, look at this face. Look at this verse. Verse 15. Just to finish before we do something different. And gazing at him, 
All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Is Mel here or has she gone off to crash? Oh, I wanted to embarrass her and make everyone look at her. She's 36 weeks pregnant and she's glowing. Yeah? We always talk about pregnant women who they glow because they're pregnant. Stephen here is pregnant with the gospel. He's, preg- he's, he's pregnant. He's pregnant. That's what he is. He's glowing. He's just pregnant with what Jesus has done for me. And I'm just not going to shut up about this. And I'm going to put this into action and the Holy Spirit work through me to show there's a bigger God than me. That's glowing. He's got the face of an angel. That's what's happening in this guy. The IVP uh, uh, commentary on this passage says, So full of the Spirit, so full of wisdom, faith, grace and power is Stephen that the glory of God shines from his face. And then I've got to ask myself, is that me? Do I really? It's a big question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Am I pregnant with the gospel? I want to do something a little bit different before we come to worship. Um, See, I've got a whiteboard and I've not forgotten. Today, if we've learned that the gospel affects everybody, the gospel is for all, We've also seen that the gospel transforms us. We've also seen that we need to be sharing it. And sometimes, as I asked you earlier, we often struggle with that, don't we? Sometimes we have opportunities to present the bare gospel. Sometimes it's hard to even get to that point. But sometimes we do. We're like, uh, I'm trying to work out the right words and where to start. Um, Well, let's just look at it in a new way. Maybe you need to hear it in a new way yourself for whatever reason. Maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus. Maybe you're you're just feeling dry. You just need to... Hear what Jesus has done in a fresh way. That's what I want to do now. Maybe you just want to learn a new way of sharing the gospel with people. If you bump into them, it's, this is something you can do on a napkin, on a piece of paper, or on a whiteboard. But at the very least, having heard what Jesus has done in three minutes, we can then sing on the back of it and celebrate our amazing Jesus. You up for that? Yes? Right, let me get this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to do it where everybody's going to see. If I move all this out of the way, I don't want to get anyone else way. It's a trouble. Shall I bring this forward? Can you see that, Bill? Can you see it, Bob? Bob said he can't. Need a bit more that way? Or do you just need your other glasses on? (laughs) Okay. This is called The Three Circles. If you want to film it on your phone so you can memorize it, you can learn it, share it around. Feel free to get your phones out. Or if I remember this evening, or remind me, I'll ping a link. It's all over YouTube. I'll ping a link to um, growth group leaders and so on. This is just a really helpful way to understand what Jesus has done for us. So, it's called the three circles. We live in a world, and wherever we look, we see brokenness around us, do we not? This world is broken. We see it on the news. We see the wars. We see the big things going on. We also see it in our neighborhoods. We even see it in our hearts. There is hatred. There is selfish gain, self-centeredness. There is brokenness all around But the trouble is, that was never what God had planned for us. God 
has always had his perfect design, where instead of brokenness, there is wholeness. Instead of hatred, there is love. Instead of darkness, there is light. That has always been God's perfect plan for us. But we, thinking we know better, decided we'd rather not live life his way, we do things our way. And we've turned away from him and ended up in this broken place. And the Bible calls that sin. Sin is simply worshipping, living for anything other than God, who is all things good. Does that make sense? So because of that, we are lost in this broken place. We are broken, and we are living in a broken world. Now, we do lots of things to try and escape it. We do lots of things like trying to be really good and nice. Kindness is a good thing. So we try and escape the brokenness by being good. We even escape it by going to church. Or we escape it by seeking a career and success. Or we try and escape the brokenness by using drugs, turning to alcohol, getting lost in sex, or even just trying to numb it with entertainment. We all have different things we turn to to escape the brokenness that we see in us and the brokenness we find around us. We all have things we turn to. The trouble with each of these methods of trying to escape the brokenness is that they're like bungee cords. They're like elastic bands. Because what they will always do, after a while, they will always ping us back to the broken world and the brokenness within us, hard as we like. But God, because he's good, has never wanted to leave us there, lost in this cycle of brokenness that we can't escape. He wanted to do something for us. So he, God himself, Jesus, he stepped down into our broken world stepped down into the darkness and he took its consequences on his shoulders on the cross where he met with the effects of sin, the consequences of our brokenness, he took on his own shoulders so that we don't have to. And he rose from the grave proving he's completely victorious over death, completely victorious over sin and that he is the king of all things. And he simply says, I live the perfect life that you can't live. I am the unbroken one. But I suffer the consequences of your brokenness so you don't have to. And all you have to do to escape this cycle of brokenness, he simply says, turn to me and believe in me and you can have what I have. And if you do that, it's as simple as that. If you do that, I will bring you home. Back to God's perfect design. That's where we grow. That's where we flourish. That's where we were meant to be in the first place. And because of what Jesus has done, we can come home. And the good thing is, we don't just even stay there. God sends us back to share the good news of what Jesus has done to everybody around us. Now, that begs a question. Because this leaves us with two types of people in this world. There are those who are living according to God's perfect design because of what Jesus has done. Or there are those who are still living in brokenness. And my question to you would be, where are you? Are you living according to God's perfect plan because of Jesus? Or are you still living in brokenness? And if you're still living in brokenness, I'll ask you, where would you like to be? Because there's something we can do now. We can pray about that now. It is as simple as turning to and believing on Jesus 
and getting what he gives us, the freedom to come home and be at one with God. And there is no time like the present. Shall we stand? The band can come back. I mean, this isn't masking Margaret too much, but I'd like to leave this up. It just might help us inspire. Let me move it back a little bit. They're not in the way. We should be all right. But as we sing, let's just celebrate our amazing king who did not have to step in the world, did not 